Ladies, gentlemen, and kindred, welcome to the human energy field. As always, I'm your host, Henry, and I'm here with Games Master Jamie for a very special episode. The first in a series, we will be doing character creation for Vampire the Masquerade 2nd Edition. Um, this is the first in a series which will also be covering the other games in the World of Darkness. As we uh, progress through a lot of our other episodes, we will be covering these for listeners to follow along with, for listeners to get some advice, get a different outlook on the methods of character creation. Maybe you're running a vampire game, maybe you're not, but this will inspire you to do so. Maybe you're running some sort of other narrative game and you want a bit of advice or you want to be inspired. Or maybe it's lockdown and you're bored out of your fucking school and you want something to listen to. Games Master Jamie, how are you doing? Are you prepared? Are you ready? I'm prepared as I'll ever be for you know for this kind of thing or a game or character creation. Always ready, born ready with uh, with dice in hand, so to speak. Uh, yeah, I'm doing well, man. It's doing well. Um, looking forward to it. I think um, the thing with vampires, it's, it's it's one of those character creation methods where it's all point allocation so everything is in the hands of the the person creating the character which which i really love you know it's nice to roll dice for stats and stuff like D, but um you know i think this is great because it's all just a series of choices so you can you can really end up with a a, a well-crafted character that you've kind of you've had a whole hand in in forming from the you know from the very beginning so yeah i'm looking forward to it and also just any chance i get to talk about vampire is brilliant you know Oh yeah, oh yeah. So we're starting with Vampire. We'll we'll cover the other games in the World of Darkness uh, in future episodes. So stay tuned for that as well. Yeah, I would I would think I would think over time we're not going to do them back to back, but we we will cover we'll cover the core five. Uh, whether we get into the other ones, um, I don't know. So we we'll do Vampire, Werewolf, Mage, Wraith, and Changeling. Not necessarily in that order, but we'll over the the coming months or whatever we'll 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 cover those at some point in, in some other games, but. I don't know whether we'll stretch into Demon and Hunter and stuff like that. I think by the time we've done five, I think that that is enough for people. <laughs> I don't think anyone needs to hear any more after that. I might persuade you to, to do a Hunter game for us, just because of that, oh. that rule book cover, that front cover. Oh. But, you know, never mind. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about, <laughs> we can talk about why Hunter isn't a good game some of the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we are playing Vampire the Masquerade 2nd Edition. Um, I am going to be creating a character. Listeners, you can follow along if you want to get a character sheet ready. I have um, found a PDF of the second edition core book on a website called The Trove. I've downloaded my second edition character sheet from a website called Mr. Gone, which is great for World of Darkness sheets. You've got all sorts of stuff on there. So anytime I'm playing a World of Darkness game, I always go to Mr. Gone. Um, and pull it off there. He's got editable PDF character sheets. He's got two-page versions and four-page versions with all the backstory on it and everything. So if you're looking for free resources to download, print off, to follow along with creating a character or start up your own campaign, I would check those out. Um, Jamie, you've got the rule book right there. Is that right? I do, and I just think it's worth prefacing this, um, this process as to why we've picked second edition because... We're aware that at the minute, you know, Vampire the Masquerade is in its shiny new fifth edition and there's been a V20 and there's been a third edition and of course there was a first. So why pick the second edition? I think it's worth um, covering that before we get into it. Um, two reasons. That was my next question. Yeah, two, well, two yeah. reasons. The first one is shamelessly, it's my favorite. Um, but then the second reasons will probably begin to illuminate why um, it is my favorite. I think 
what you get from the second edition is uh, a sense of the game uh, as it was really created at its genesis. Um, the minor flaws uh, and whatever have been ironed out from the first edition. And the second edition was quite early in, in the game's lifespan anyway. I think there was only a year or so between the first and the second edition. Um, and it really has a, a more OSR, deeper, kind of Anne Rice, old school feel to the second edition, um, which you begin to lose as you as you approach revised. It becomes a bit shinier. Um and it changes tone very slightly um, and that's not to say for better or worse there's a lot of people who prefer revised and um, a lot of people who got into it and revised and then v20 etc the reason i wouldn't do v20 is because there's just so many options in that book which is great for existing players or fans of um, vampire the masquerade uh, for a long time who want all those options um, but the second edition really streamlines the character creation process um, with the very early options which to me form the core of what vampire the masquerade's all about um, and we haven't we've decided not to do the the newest version because personally I have a lot of issues with the new version um, and, and it, it's the version that takes the most radical change away from the previous versions so for that case um, I think a lot of people will probably be maybe more people playing fifth at the minute but I think overall uh, I think more people are probably familiar with the original um, and second edition for those reasons um, for me is the best edition to use Right, and that's not to say that this episode can't be used and applied to those different editions, I assume. I would say that the character creation process uh, throughout all of those editions is so similar and the mechanics are so similar, especially between 1st, 2nd, 3rd um, and V20, that this is fairly pretty much the same for all of them. You know, we're talking about the same attributes, the same abilities, the same character creation process. There might be minor differences in, you know, what you get to do here and there. But yeah, somebody who plays um, revised or, or is a fan of E20 or whatever, this, most of this will be as applicable to, to any version as it would be the second. It's just that if you hear us talking about, I don't know if we'll get into page references or, or little options that might vary very slightly from the edition that, that you may have. Um, but there's so little difference. Um, we just had to pick one, and this is just the one we went for. Sad. And this is this is um, the version that appeals to me the most. I've got my nice gothic-looking character sheet here. Um, I have not prepared anything in advance for the character that you're about to listen to us create together. So this is all done improv. So hopefully we're going to come up with something pretty interesting. I think that's the best way to do it because, um, for me, the... It, Part of maybe what this is for and what you might get out of it as a listener is you sit down at a, at a table, whether that be virtual or real, and the GM would normally say, right, here's the game, let's create a character. And I think Vampire is a, a great process of character creation because it can be done fairly quickly. Um, you know, it doesn't take huge amounts of time. Um, you can spend more time in it to get a deeper character out of it, of course. But um, in a nutshell, if you know what you're doing with the system, you can sit down and create a character in, in 10 minutes, which is great, and you can get up and roll and die straight away. And there's a lot of modern systems that do that, of course, because they're very rules-light, but um, Vampire was a real kind of um, primogenitor of these these narrative systems rather than those clunky mechanic systems, and I think that's why a lot of it is so is so good for just, just character choices and just assign some dots and move forward. But we can, we'll talk more about that as we get through the process. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so we will begin with one of the most important things about any RPG. What's the setting? So in order to get maximum um, kind of coverage on this and for it to be as useful as many people as possible, I think what we'll do is we will plumb for a very basic um, big city modern setting. Um, so uh, the original vampire 
was written to be set uh, when it was written. It was it was of its own time. So when Mark Reinhagen, etc., were writing this, it was uh, coming out in the very late eighties into the early nineties. Um, that whole shtick, music and fashion and whatever, helped to form the aesthetic that we know as vampire now. So. Quite often when I start a vampire game, I'll, I'll tend to start it in the very late 80s. So what we'll say is that um, it's well, 987, uh, which is, you know, kind of late 80s. Um, we'll set it as we are both um, uh, in the UK. We'll uh, set it in, say, London, the big city. Um, the good choice for that is it allows more kindred to exist. Um, in the game's original setting, there is a ratio as to how many vampires can really exist in a high population which you could imagine is sensible um so london is big enough to to harbor quite a few kindred and to run an exciting game that can have um, kindred politics in it etc and even if we don't know london that's great because the game is set in our world but it's not necessarily the real world obviously um because vampires are running around so it's the gothic punk version of london so you know a lot darker a lot you know um it's just a minor differences. We don't don't have to stick to the street map. So I think London in the very late 80s um, allows us to cut a, a lot of unusual kind of choices out there and just keeps it more of a, a basic vampire game. If we were American, I would say New York or Chicago or, or one of those. But I think in the UK, we pick a big city and London's our biggest one. All right, then. I'm filling this character sheet in literally as we go. So I'm just going to write that in here. Um, so I'm a new player. Where should I begin? Okay, so one of the good things about Vampire is um, it, it really guides you through the character creation process. So um, in the second edition book, on page 86, we have the beginning of the character creation system. And there's always a nice section called Getting Started and the Character Creation Process. And the first part of the character creation process with Vampire is to come up with a concept. So, and this is the real bit where you kind of pull an ideas out of the air. What kind of character do you want to play um, you know who what kind of person do you want to be and these can be as detailed or as kind of vague ideas as you like and as the character creation process continues we'll we'll form that into a, a, a real character right so concept comes before uh, clans before abilities well, it's setting then concept immediately concept should come into everything because whether you want to be and we'll get into the clans in a minute but whether you want to be a toreador or, or a nosferatu or whatever the concept is greater than that because it's do you want to be a smart investigative hero? Do you want to be a, a combat heavy kind of creature? Do you want to be an ex-cop? You know, what is the most important thing to your character? And I would say that anyone who comes to Vampire saying the most important thing about my character is he's a Toreador or she's a Toreador is missing the point of concept because you can still be a Toreador or whatever, but um, you can be an ex-cop Toreador, you can be a strong Toreador, you can be an artiste, you can be whatever. If... if the idea is so heavily tied into your clan that's fine you know and that's okay some people have a real penchant for the different clans but it still doesn't trump the concept the concept is king right right okay so i want something that will give me narrative drive as a player something that'll give me agency so i want uh reasons to be going out and making things happen myself so i'm thinking perhaps a private detective or a some kind of agent or perhaps um, an ex-cop or current cop or something like that, something along those lines maybe. 
Okay, so straight away that's got my creative juices flowing. And you're talking about private detective and cop and things like that. You can go out and have the kind of reason to go out and investigate things. Now, as the character title suggests, you are a vampire, so you are no longer in the realm of the living, which would make holding down a, a bog-standard job as a private, private detective pretty difficult. Of course, mm -hmm. you can take calls at night and move around, but what might be fun is if you played some form of investigative human who now, being a vampire, is utilised by the, um, the prince and the court of the city to investigate matters which they need dealing with. So straight away it allows me to um, bring you in at the beginning of a session and go, you know, the prince or the, the, the council wants you to go and investigate this and straight we're off with a hook. So let, let's join forces with that idea and let's say that you're going to be a, a, a vampiric investigator so you're going to investigate crimes and um, breaking of the masquerade and breaking of traditions and which will allow us to explore all of that kind of stuff and it'll, like you say it'll give you that agency to go out and do things so let's say you know vampiric investigator awesome that's really cool so i was a i was a pi in my mortal life and th that skill set which has come through with me into uh unlife i'm now uh utilizing f on behalf of uh other forces yeah, and then straight okay. away, because you've got that concept, that's going to allow you much easier to start filling in dots and choosing, um, you know, clans and powers and things like that. So um, do you imagine yourself as male, female, young, old? I am going to go for the cliched kind of washed up alcoholic PI. So I think I'll, I think I'll be male this time and probably pass my prime. Okay. Cool. So we've already got, um, we're starting to form a little visual aspect of the character, which is great. And that that's all that we really need from that concept. I mean, that, that already we have a strong concept. We don't need to go into too much details because we can thrash those details out as we start allocating points. Um, okay, so once we've done the concept, we move on to what you've just mentioned, which is the clan. Ooh. So in Vampire, um, this isn't a direct um, connection, obviously, but you can assume the clans are a little bit like character classes. In a way, this shouldn't be viewed like that. But for people who aren't necessarily familiar with Vampire and are coming into it and trying to grasp the concepts, it can be an easy um, kind of connection to make between the two. Um, so what we have is the clans are certain bloodlines of vampires who are descended all the way back to very powerful um, grandchildren of, of Cain. And each bloodline certain carries with it certain powers, um, ideas, even certain aesthetics to a certain degree, um, certain weaknesses and strengths each one comes with. So in Vampire, in the core book, in second edition, we have the seven Camarilla clans. The Camarilla, for those who are not familiar with Vampire, is the kind of default society, organized society of kindred um, who are kind of formed themselves into a ruling body in order to continue to hide themselves from from mankind so these clans are in a, a de facto alliance if you will with each other in, in for mutual benefit right right there are seven clans is that correct there are in this book and and i would say for anyone who's starting a vampire game it can be quite useful to limit the initial character creation choices to these seven um, it's very easy if you want to start a vampire game for characters who know the, the setting very well to rock up with a very complicated and weird character idea that they pulled from some random source book and that can really derail a game super fast. 
Now, I'm not saying those character concepts wouldn't be great, but you're always going to get that one guy who wants to be a, you know, Giovanni pretending he's a follower of Setai who's actually, you know, an abomination. And, and all of a sudden you just, no, I don't need that. Like, just pick one from, <laughs> pick one from the seven. Um, there should be plenty of choice in these, in these main seven to keep everybody happy. And if there isn't, then I think any player coming to the table who doesn't want to pick one of these seven is just looking to derail the game anyway, or looking, right, or right. looking to play a different game from what you what you set out to do. So maybe a different game, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so tip number one, guys, keep it simple. Um, all right, so tell me about the first clan, please, mate. All right, okay, so um, we'll just go through them as they're presented very quickly. I'm not gonna. This is not a thing where we're gonna, you know, spend a long time talking about each clan because I'm making sweeping generalizations. I will make some comments that, you know, people might disagree with or whatever, but I'm just doing it from a very, you know, people who don't necessarily listen to Vampire, who don't want to get bogged down into me going into the, the histories of each clan. And also what you've got to remember when this book was released, I think 1992, um, the clans and their backgrounds and histories weren't quite as deep and cemented and um, expansive as they are now with 30 years worth of backstory added to them. And the, what, what's great about second edition is you still have a lot of this freedom. So the, the history of the clans and the history of the clans members are, are, are not set in stone as much as, uh, as I said, after decades of meta plot. So starting with the Brujar, they are essentially the rebels. Um, as, as an aesthetic key to these is the bike girl with the leather jacket and, you know, kind of mohawk and shades and cigarette. Well, all vampires wear shades and smoke cigarettes. That's just the way it is. But, um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's the kind of bully boys of the Camarilla. Um, so I always think it's an interesting aside that these were directly um, influenced by the vampire bikers from the Anne Rice novels. Um, and anyone who's read those novels will, will know what I mean. And anyone who hasn't really should go and read them because if you're interested in, in Vampire the Masquerade, it, its main influence, if not one of the main influences, is the um, Vampire Chronicles by Anne Rice. So... Um, cool. So yeah, the the Brujar are the kind of fighters, um, you know, rebels, anarchists, if you will. Uh, not so anarchists that they don't that they want to leave this organization called the Camarilla, but they're kind of pushing the boundaries, and you know, they're kind of troublemakers. Um, moving on, we get the Gangrel. The Gangrel are the animalistic, more feral side of um, the the vampires. So when you imagine things like um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, who could turn into the wolf and things like that. Um, that's the that the gangrel concept. Tends to live out in the kind of more rural areas, um, very bestial. Um, through their powers, they, they can sometimes change over time. They have sharper claws and red eyes, and so they're they're the more kind of feral and animalistic um, kindred. We move on to Malkavians. Now, Clan Malkavian. Um, their main weakness, which ties them all together, is their or strength, if you want to look at it that way, is they all suffer from some form of derangement. So, which means that they all have some sort of um, issue, uh, some sort of mental disorder. Now, this is interesting because, especially in the in the kind of days that we live in, people can quite often get really offended and, you know, can sit down at a table and, and the whole idea of bringing up, you know, mental health as a form of entertainment, I, I can understand it pushes some people's buttons. But just presenting this as it's written, as the game is done. Um, and also, you know, I think it's 
not out of a GM's uh, remit to say, look, I, I don't want to deal with Malkavians. They can be tricky characters to, to GM and to play anyway. So I think if a starting GM says, look, I, I, I don't want Malkavians, pick one of the other six. I don't think that's too restrictive. I think that's fine. Um, and I think anybody wanting to play Malkavian, um, it's great to have a real think about what kind of mental disorder this character has, how it presents itself, and kind of try and get into it almost as a way to to understand more about that mental process, even though obviously the the method of a game will never be able to to come up with uh, you know um, the same feelings and experiences as real life, but maybe it'll help us understand a little bit better. Um, so yeah, it, whether it's anything from multiple personality disorders to schizophrenia to bipolar to depression, all of these kind of things can be covered by um, Malkavians. So the Nosferatu are the next one. And these are the hideous kind of creatures of the night who are inspired by the original movie of the same name. So if you can imagine that Max Shrek um, style, you know, black and white, off the top of my head, I think it's 1926, something like that, um, black and white movie of of him kind of creeping around the ship and all that, long fingernails and kind of bald head. That's this idea of a Nosferatu. In, In the game, they are kind of spy masters, um, and information gatherers and they kind of tend to live in the sewers and, and keep like alligators and, and kind of animals around them and stuff um, so yeah, that's the Nosferatu all their weaknesses they're all ugly um, very very ugly um, the next one is Toreador uh, Toreador are the kind of uh, twisted artists of vampire society so singers painters sculptors all, you imagine this guy this this tortured artist ideal is, is really where what the, the, the Toreador sums up, you know, the poet, um, the painter, all of that kind of thing. And the Tremere are the warlocks of vampire society. They are the masters of a kind of blood magic called thematogy. Um, to do a very quick um, recap, they were a bunch of wizards back in the past, and those wizards sought out um, immortality and, and they kind of became vampires so to speak to cut the long story short um, pretty cool yeah and over, over centuries now they're, they're kind of in the Camarilla um, some of them still are distrusted but they uh, they are the masters of uh, blood magic and finally we have the Von True uh, in some way the Von True are the default vampire I often say to characters if they're unsure about who to play then, then go for a Von True because it ticks mm. a lot of what we think are the classic vampire boxes um, you know, they tend to be of noble blood. Um, they tend to be involved in um, capitalism or, or corporate endeavors, running businesses, maybe huge estates, all this kind of thing. They think they're in charge, um, but most of the time they probably are. Um, and, and they kind of, you know, come from these these kind of royal families and stuff like that, and descendants of, of, of positions of great power. Um, and I think a lot of the the powers that they have, you know, to dominate and and presence being the way to get people to do things that you want, whether by intimidation or, or by coercion, um, quite is often tied in with that, that Bram Stoker idea of the charming vampire um, and that kind of thing. So those seven wrap up the um, the original character choices from the core book. Right, and I'm, I imagine there are maybe other clans, but these are the uh, the main seven given to players initially there are there are many many different clans and bloodlines uh, and this is partly what i was saying before um you know you may have a player come along who has a certain source book where there is a, a random bloodline who who has a very powerful discipline or set of powers and he really wants to play this but and obviously not marking all players with the same brush but what you tend to find is players who 
a lot of players who pick these very random characters are picking them purely for the the kind of broken powers that they have and that they bring to the game. Um, and, and any player who's really just interested in, in the game itself should be happy to pick from the original seven. Um, I'm sure there are some people who come along and go, oh, you know, I really love this other clan and it's all about concept for me. And do you know what? I'm sure it, it is. And I'm sure your character concept is brilliant. Um, but quite often that is used as a mask to hide the fact that all of a sudden when combat starts, you can just jump up and say, I've turned into a 10-foot demon and I've got 26 <sighs> attacks and um, I beat everybody in initiative and I do aggravated damage and all of these all, all these horrible things that all of a sudden the GM has kind of been swooned by your interesting character concept and then before he knows it, you've broken the game and all these balanced encounters that he set out, you just overturn them with the flick of a wrist because you've min-maxed the game. So yeah, watch out for these power gamers who just want to pick these random um, random side clans and bloodlines. Um, but even in the original, there are more. Um, I would say the base number is 13. Now's not the time to get into them all. Um, <laughs> but those Camarilla clans, which I've gone through, you know, Brujar, Gangrel, Toreador, Nosferatu, Malkavian, Tremere, and Von Tru, uh, should cover all of the main bases and sh should allow player characters enough choice in order to come up with the cover the concept that they want basically i really like the nosferatu artwork here on page 132 this nosferatu has got a he's an ugly looking chap with big horrible teeth but he's got a quite a, a bespoke fitting pinstripe suit and a bowler hat and he's got a monocle and yeah. I think he's got a pocket watch coming out of his pocket there and some tailor's scissors. I, I'm, I'm liking this whole vibe, so I'm, I'm going to choose Nosferatu for my uh, clan. Do you know what? And this, this is what makes choosing the concept early so important because Nosferatu really fits with this idea of, you know, gathering information, being this kind of mm. spy master, you know, having your fingers in all the pies, knowing what's going on. It's a perfect fit for your concept. So it, that's allowed you, having, having a thought about your concept and having a strong concept has allowed you to just pick... A, a clan very quickly that that suits your concept now that's not Great. to say that you couldn't have picked any of the others of course you could um you know you could have picked for instance a toreador who is more interested in um going around london's um kind of art scene and, and figuring out who's doing forgeries and all that kind of stuff and that could have been a very different feel of game but nosferatu i'd say is you know a nice de facto almost kind of stereotypical investigator style clan so that it just suits the concept perfectly so yeah we can can move forward with the choice of Nosferatu. That's cool. The investigating art forgeries sounds like a wicked idea. Though, yeah. So let's keep that in the bank for us. Another point. That sounds awesome. Okay. Um, so next we move on to something um, which I think a lot of players overlook. Um, it's nature and demeanor. So to summarize what these two, um, it's weird because they're not really stats. They're kind of um, character choices. And personality archetypes. Yeah. yeah. So, and the nature um, is your personality inside and your demeanor is the personality that you show to others. Mm. And it's interesting that Vampire as a Game highlights the fact that these can indeed be different. Um, we as individual people, if we look inside ourselves, realize that we quite often show a different mask to the world that we have when we're alone. Uh, you know, we, we realize we don't necessarily always present our true selves to other people. Um, now, some people do. Some people's um, nature and demeanor are identical. Uh, some people's are radically different. And this is the first part of really opening up the, the kind of personality ideas uh, of whatever character you're going to decide. 
Um, it's also it's got some mechanical elements to it about how you can regain willpower, um, you know, which is quite often a resource that can be overlooked in the game. I feel by a lot of people. Um, but yeah, the personality archetypes I think are really important and. There's a lot of them, so um, we're not going to go through them now. Um, and I think we'll just breeze over uh, nature and demeanor um, to a degree. I think it's, we can pick some now, just kind of off the cuff, but I don't want to go through describing them. They're, they're, they're obvious, you know. We've got things, such things as jester, which means that you you know you play the fool, you're kind of clowning around all the time. And there's, there's other personalities called loner, um, child, which means you never really grew up, um, caregiver, which is like the opposite of child, you know, means you always want to kind of mother people and protect them so there's a great load of choices there and i think they can be really useful in in kind of beginning to think you know how does my character feel deep down on his own but what kind of personality does he reflect to everybody else and i think there's already the first of many conflicts which should arise yeah great and it's it's interesting to you can create any combination of dualities within your own character at this early stage absolutely um which yeah so it's a good it's a good way of doing it and also as a player if I'm coming in new to this game um, and I am still getting a, a grip on how to play, just from looking at these, each nature and demeanor, each archetype has a little mechanic at the end which explains how you regain willpower points, which we'll come to later, based on your actions. So it's just a little hook for me as a player to remember this is the sort of thing that I should be doing based on the personality that I've chosen when I'm in game. It's a nice little reminder for... Uh, how sort of guide me on how I could play based on what I've chosen. Yeah, because a lot of people forget that you know when you're creating a character, especially for a storytelling game, you are playing somebody else. You know, you're playing somebody else with different goals and motivations and desires and hidden fears. And sometimes having these little mechanics which you've mentioned at the end, you're right. It's a nudge to act like this character, not like yourself. And and that's part of the joy of role playing. You get to become somebody else for a long time. So I think you know nature and demeanors can change over time as well. So I would always say that as a GM, you know, if you if you pick them and they don't seem to fit, you know, you can start shifting them over time. Um, you know, not every week uh, because that's chaotic and that starts to come into a derangement. Um, but yeah, I think it's uh, they're really useful and they're often overlooked. There's just a lot of them um, to get bogged down in, and you know. With there being so many, the, the combinations between the two, there's myriad combinations. Um, so there's, there's a lot of variation there. Yeah, and they are really interesting. I am going to choose for my demeanor, my out, my outward appearance, I'm going to pick judge. Yeah. Which is um, someone who seeks to make things better through rational judgment and thinking and yeah. I regain willpower whenever I can successfully separate the truth from a web of lies which makes sense for my yeah person but massively suits your concept yeah yes my nature my inner my inner being I'm going to choose conniver right interesting so uh, conniver is somebody who always thinks there's an easier way um, which usually involves somebody else doing the work so yeah, and I regain willpower whenever I'm able to get my way by tricking another person into doing that. So I, I can uh, <clears throat> come across as a maybe maybe a more gallant person than I really am deep down when I'm actually a bit of a scumbag. And with with that, with the choosing of the nature and demeanour, we, we've covered step one, which I think is the most important step of the character creation process. We haven't even assigned any dots to any kind of stats and already you should have a really good feel about who your character is. And I think before we move out of step one, you should at least give them a name. 
Well, the combination of being a private investigator and being a uh, maybe let's make him a Cockney. Let's make him London born and bred. So he's got to have a kind of snappy, fancy name. I'm going to call him Throckmorton. And then because of the bowler hat makes me think of Emma Peel from the old Avengers. So his <laughs> nice. name's going to be Throckmorton Peel. Brilliant. And I already love that little throwaway line that you've done. You know, he's from London. He's a local boy, which is great for him knowing, you know, the streets and maybe knowing, you know, people and families and locations, which you can represent later with some dots. So that's great. Keep keep those little um, creative kind of nuggets coming out. Any Anytime you think of something all oh, good, to just jot it down on the character creation web uh, sheet. Awesome. Our boy Throckmorton Peel's coming together nicely. Well, that's it. So we already have this idea of Throckmorton Peel, the kind of Nosferatu investigator who used to be a private eye in his real life. You know, he's washed out. Um, like you see, he's an alcoholic. So maybe that that helps to affect how he looks. Do you know what I mean? That very pale pallor. I mean, all Nosferatu were horrendously ugly anyway, but then you could really play up that that kind of you know, bad liver side of it, you know what I mean? Liver, yeah, and liver make stink as well. And yeah, and stinks of alcohol and piss and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, great. So already we have a, a, a really strong concept. And I, and I think that's one of the hardest things, uh, I think, when you sit down to, to do a game like this is to come up with that character. So sometimes it can be so easy just to throw the dots down and see what you get. But this way, now when we start doing dots, which we're going to, you already have a firm backbone skeleton with which to dress. Um, you know these stats on top of so we move into step two which is the uh, the choice and allocation of your attributes so for those who don't know vampire um, it's a mixture of attributes and abilities attributes are the basic stats that you would recognize from any other rpg so we have strength dexterity charisma etc etc perception um, we have them uh, there are nine uh, attributes and they are split into three pillars so if you can imagine a character being made up of physical, mental, and social attributes. Um, and one of the interesting things about this character creation process is it gets you to decide where your priorities lie as a character uh, within those three broad spectrums. So you can be a very physical character, you can be a predominantly mental character, or you can be a predominantly social character. Now any good game will utilize and test the attributes in all three pillars. But this is going to show where Throckmorton Peel shines, where he's, you know, where he's best. So when you think about those three pillars, which one do you think would be um, priority number one? Which one do you think would be mid-priority? And which one do you think would be least important? It's got to be mental is number one. Yeah. And um, I'm going to put social as number two because that has manipulation. And that's something that I am tying back to my uh, nature. So he is manipulative. So I'm picking um, physical as number three. Okay, so with that, now that you've assigned them in first, second, and third place, you get, respectively, seven points, five points, and three points to allocate between the three attributes in each of those pillars. So as an example, uh, your most important one we'll begin with is mental. That is split down into perception, intelligence, and wits. Now you will begin with an automatic one dot in each attribute. And because this is your primary pillar, you will then get to assign another seven points across those stats okay. as you like, just allocation. So you could put two in, uh, two in each, two in each, and a third in another one or whatever you want to do. Five is the maximum at this point. Um, and obviously right. 
one is the minimum. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm, I've got seven points to spend. Mm -hmm. I'm putting two points into each, and my third point to make it seven is going to go into um, perception. He's an investigator, so he's going to be a, a perceptive character. Okay. And then we're going to go down into your second choice. Okay. Social column, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, this is an interesting one. There's a, there's a variant here. Because you're in Nosferatu, and you will automatically start with appearance of zero. Okay. So you can cross out that uh, you would normally get a free dot in appearance. Obviously, you don't. Um, so what you have left is charisma and manipulation. Uh, you get a, as always, you get a starting point in each of those. And because this is your second pillar, you get five points to distribute between those two. Can I put the, all my five points into manipulation? You can't because you only have four spaces. You start with one point. And you can put four uh, five max. Yeah, you can put four points in emulation, which will bring it to a level of five, and then you would have a point left for charisma. Okay, I'll put my my um, four points into manipulation, and my one point's going into charisma. Maybe that represents um, because he's he's a local boy. Maybe he knows some people around, or he is able to draw on local history and local knowledge, and that kind of gives him a grounding with other people in in London. So he's not completely um, yeah terrifying. Yeah. And then physical, I'm going to put all three into dexterity. Cool. Physical split into strength, dexterity, and stamina. And you only have three points, so you're going to put three dots into that. Um, and straight away now, you can see the skeleton of what you've got. So Throckmorton Peel isn't very strong and is, is, isn't very endurant, um, but, he's, but he's fast. Um, he is very perceptive, smart-witted, um, not very charismatic, but he knows how to manipulate people. So these dots perfectly fit into your concept and, and now you have them as the, the core for what's going to be your dice pools. Awesome. Um, so that's very, that's attributes from very quick. And then we will move on to do abilities. Now, abilities are also split into three pillars, but rather than be split into physical, social, and mental, they are split into talents, skills, and knowledges. Um, they do not tie into the they do not um, copy the, the three pillars so it's not that skills are all social and talents are all physical um, you can combine any ability with any attribute for, for a dice roll so the way that they split out is talents obviously things that you tend to have innate ability with maybe things that you're born with uh, developed over time skills are things you have spent time and dedicated to learn and have been taught and knowledges obviously are, are kind of self-explanatory um, you know areas of of expertise in terms of knowledge so again you have to assign a priority to each this time you'll get a lot more dots to play with because there are a lot more options I always find this tricky because the any kind of build that I come up with for a character that uses this system the talent skills and knowledges all contain things that I want to specialize in but because they're all split across these three columns, I never. it's always difficult to know where to put my points. Do you know what? It's interesting that you said that because it allows us to mention something which we'll come back to at the end, which mm. is the, uh, the spending of freebie points. So uh, when we get to the end of the character creation process, you'll get a, a pool of points that you can then distribute across the character sheet um, at various costs in order to plug gaps, which the character creation process hasn't necessarily allowed you to present the way that you wanted to. 
So if you see a single, uh, a couple of skills, say in talents, and but you, you really want to spend a lot of points on skills and knowledges, then you can come back later and plug some gaps. So uh, I can totally see what you mean um, because the abilities are spread a certain way. Um, it makes it very difficult to assign a priority to each one. Um, yeah. But what you tend to find is the knowledges, um, if that is a priority, that tends to lend itself better to a kind of intelligent character, a bookwormy character, or what, what would be a traditional, what would be the mage kind of style character. Um, whereas it's much harder to split out the difference between skills and talents. But I would say anybody who is um, has physical as their highest may well lean towards putting um, more points into talents. But it's not always the case. As I say, they don't they don't follow on from each other. I've chosen to put the most... My priority one is knowledges. Yep, which you had 13 points to spend. Uh, with your abilities, you didn't get any free points. So uh, obviously, level one will cost you one, etc., etc. Now, it's worth mentioning at this point that you can't go any higher than three on any one ability. Right. Glad you said that. You can. Uh, a lot of people just throw, throw the points in, but you stop at three, and then you can increase them past that with the use of freebie points later. Right. Okay. So in that column of knowledges with my 13 points, I have brought, sorry, I have bought um, two points in bureaucracy, two points in finance, three points in investigation, three points in law, and three points in the occult. Okay, cool. Um, my second priority is the talents column. I have spent three points in alertness, three points in intimidation, and three points in streetwise. Interesting. That makes sense. And my third priority, I went for skills in the middle, which with only five points to spend there, I put three into security and two into stealth. Cool. So I guess in a way, I'm sort of telegraphing to you as the game's master the sort of game that I want to play. Absolutely, and that's really worth saying because a good GM should look at the stats and abilities and skills that characters have taken because that's exactly what it is. It's an indication of what you want to do during the game. And we're not saying that everything has to cover that, but if I'm not, if I'm not at least presenting um, scenes and little bits of plot that cover your choices, then then we're coming at the game from totally different odds, um, and and that you know we're not going to get the same experience out of the game so you're absolutely right it's a, it's a joint thing and any gm should be looking at a sheet that way so I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that cool and i put two points into bureaucracy because i want to make it difficult for you yeah cool okay uh now the fun bit we get to do uh, discipline the next right we do so we get to move on to something that's called advantages uh advantages covers disciplines which are your vampiric powers and um, backgrounds and virtues which, which we'll cover next but um your disciplines they are the extraordinary powers and abilities that vampires can do due to the power in their in their blood so to speak um each clan comes with a choice of three disciplines which they are most often associated with in the case of nosferatu you are most associated with animalism obfuscate and portents oh. so this is they're the three that you can choose to assign points to and with oh, your I'm, disciplines I'm, I'm confined to those three am i you are, yes. Okay. You may only choose disciplines that your character's clan is especially kind of um, associated with. Now, right. again, not to bash on about freebie points, if you really wanted some dots in other powers, 
you can deal with them later in freebie points. But you've only got three dots of disciplines to assign and you've only got a choice of three disciplines to cover. So you could put a point in each. Uh, you don't have to put end points in, in one at all. So you could put all three points into one and ignore the other two uh, or any such combination thereon. Uh, just to explain very briefly what we're not going to go through all the disciplines, but for, for Throckmorton, uh, the choice of animalism is their affinity with and control of animals. Um, obfuscate is the ability to remain obscured, uh, evening crowds, you know, disappearing and things like that. And the third one is uh, potence, which is uh, physical vigor and strength, which is kind of that supernatural vampiric strength. Right. And obviously, if you want to um, explore the other disciplines available to the vampire characters, um, I got this PDF for free on Google. So download it if you want and have a look through. Or when you're making your own character, you can uh, spend a bit more time than we are going through this. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to put all three points into Obfuscate. Okay, cool. And then I think, it, you know, it's at this point or later, you can flick to Obfuscate and start looking at, you know, what kind of things Throckmorton can do with this level of power. Um, and, you know, you can do some really, really cool stuff with um, the disciplines, even at low levels, but they really come into their own once you start going up, you know, much higher levels. So with Obfuscate, for instance, you know, your Cloak of Shadows is the level one power. Unseen Presence, and most interestingly, level three is called Mask of a Thousand Faces, uh, which Ooh. basically allows you to masquerade yourself as somebody else. Um, we're not going to go too much into the disciplines. Like you said, people can read into the different powers and there is many different discipline choices in each one. It, in this book, goes from level 1 to level 5. It's worth pointing out that um, the way the powers work in, in Vampire is that anyone who buys Obfuscate is basically able to, I'm going to say cast, I know it's not casting, but for, for purposes of, of discussion, is able to cast the same power um, as every other person with that level of discipline. So you'll find... Everybody with Obfuscate 3 will be able to do the same power you can do. Um, it, you become variations as the game progressed and more source books come out and disciplines have changed over time, etc. Um, but as far as the basic um, game is set, it's almost like gaining access to a very specific spell book um, where you've got these certain spells that can be cast. So every Nosferatu will tend to do the same powers, every Brujar will tend to do the same powers. And to a degree, every vampire is essentially working with the same tools. Um, and, and that's what kind of gives this great idea of like kind of chess and, you know, middle ground where once you play the game uh, where a lot of the NPCs and PCs are chosen from these core seven clans, you start to can recognize the use of powers and learn what all of the different powers are, even if you don't have access to them. And that's what I think is really great about Vampire, that the original choice of disciplines was just wide enough for variety, but it was small enough to get your head around without having you know, 30 pages of, of 35, 40 pages of spell descriptions, which, you know, if you if you play a lot of D&D &D or whatever, it, it's as interesting as, as you might be in the mage class, you, you probably don't know the description for every spell. So uh, when, if you do, great, good use of time, well done. Uh, lockdown's been worth it. But um, most of the time, you, you wouldn't know. You would only really learn the spells that you have. Whereas with Vampire, because it's only level one to five and the options are quite limited, um, what you'll tend to find is people will begin to understand the powers. But that's great. You've, you've picked your disciplines. Um, awesome. And then we move on to backgrounds. 
So I get separate points to spend in backgrounds than I did for disciplines. Yeah, yeah. disciplines is just a pool of three, and, and you get to to apply them. So with backgrounds, you've got a pool of five points to spend. Now, you, I like to think of backgrounds basically as um, they're almost like resources. Um, now, that can be confusing because a lot of people are shouting, "No, resources is a specific background." There are others, um, but resources, in a general term, is how I would describe background. There is a background called resources, which specifically means you have a lot of money. Um, but that's just one resource that you might be able to draw on as a vampire. Some of them are fame, influence, contacts, allies, retainers, some form of status within um, vampiric community. So there are a whole bunch of backgrounds that you can choose from. Uh, and like disciplines, you can uh, assign all of your points to one or you can assign one point to five different ones or any combination that you would choose. Um, level one backgrounds tend to be obviously very minor and they might not come into a play very much and what you can do with them is very limited, whereas a level five background is very, very, very impressive indeed. Um, so you can really, there's, there's a whole mix of ways you can approach backgrounds. So you can really pump a lot of points in one or two we can kind of spread them around a little bit. So again, without going through all the backgrounds, um, there's a list here, you know, on page 91 and the, the descriptions are covered on page 171. But, you know, do you see any backgrounds that you think you want to go for with uh, Throckmorton? Yeah, absolutely. I am going, I've got five points to spend, yeah? Yes. I'm going to buy two points in contacts because I think as some kind of uh, local investigator is going to have mates in high places, so. Yeah putting two points into contacts i'm putting one point into herd mm-hmm. um which is going to give me some blood vessels to feed on maybe they're like street street urchins or hobos or whatever yeah and um because of what you said earlier when we we're coming up with the concept about how in my mortal life i was an investigator and i've since been recruited by um the vampire higher ups i've decided to put my last two points into status Nice, interesting. Because I, I figure I'm going to be ugly and stinky. I need something that's going to at least get me a bit of sway somewhere, and I need some kind of influence. So the status is going to be my fallback when I need it. And what's great is um, for for GMs, you should be looking at these choices again, like we did with abilities. I'm looking at your backgrounds as as they should be jumping off points and hooks for me to throw into later um, later sessions because you've chosen contacts. Now, really what we should be doing is sitting down and, and developing those contract, uh, contacts as specific NPCs and giving them names and backgrounds. That pr- automatically provides me with a couple of NPCs that I know you're interested in as a character and as a player, who then I can awesome. use in order to get you into plots, etc. The status automatically starts for me to think about how the other vampires in the city look at you. Um, previously, I thought maybe they're all really looking down at you as the dirt on your shoe. Now I'm really realising with the points in status that even though they might not like you, they obviously respect what you're doing and they know you do a good job, which is probably why you've been hired by, I don't know, maybe the sheriff or, or the, um, maybe even the prince himself or herself. Who knows? Once we, You can get into that once the story starts. But having right. that status really changes the way that the other NPCs, especially vampiric NPCs, because status is um, status in vampire society, not in mortal society. Um, although you could, you could mess with it at player and GM's discretion, obviously. But as written... Um, it's the status that you will get from other members of the court, etc. Which is interesting because, as I say, now it's immediately making me think about how people will will come to you. They won't come to you with demands; they'll kind of come to you with requests, maybe, which is which is very different. 
Um, so it, all of this is a great springboard. But did you feel how easy it was to assign those backgrounds because you had a strong concept? Yep, straight from the, I came to this section on the PDF here and on the screen, and the three that I want, the three that I've chosen, jumped off the page at me. I've, you know, retainers, no um, generation, no. I could immediately negate the ones that did not fit in with the idea that I already created. That was very easy to do. Yeah, and then that like, that gives me a bit of uh, something to think about as well in terms of who my contacts might be and who, who what sort of NPCs I would hang around with. You know, they say that you are your friends. So that's that's another way for me to define my own personality of this character. Yeah. yeah. I think Throckmorton, I think he's going to be a bit of a scumbag. Yeah, and and that's good. It's good that it, it's, you know, it's working both ways. It's assigning these points is really making you think more about the character. So by the time you sit down at a table, you've got a great head start for it. Okay, so to finish off advantages, um, we get to virtues. Now, the virtues are um, courage, self-control, and conscience. And they're used for various mechanical effects in the game, which we won't get into too much. Um, loosely, self-control is um, resisting frenzy. Courage is kind of avoiding panic. Um, it flames in the sun and everything. And conscience is remorse and, and humanity, etc. So there are three virtues. Um, you will start with a single point in each one. We can assume, again, a maximum of five. In, in each virtue and you have seven points to assign ah seven okay and and they are they do what they say on the tin so you know your conscience is your conscience your courage and your self-control right i am going to go for lots of courage let's put i'm going to max out my courage okay so you spent a whole four points in in courage yeah. it gives you courage five yeah and uh, on the flip side, I'm going to only put one point into self-control because I feel like he right. doesn't have much of that. Okay. Um, and then that leaves me the two points for conscience. Right, great. Um, and like I say, those will have mechanical effects, but again, it should be another thing that's making you make that decision about how courageous or, or, or how much in control he is, which straight away you've got those dots, which represents that. And I, I might, in this case, I think, the fact that I've maxed out courage doesn't necessarily mean that he's a gallant or valorous character like it says here, but more that maybe he's got nothing to live for and he just is completely fearless because he just does not give a shit about anything anymore. Yeah. You know, he, he looks like shit, he stinks, he's, 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 he's fearless in that regard and you know, he just throws himself into these situations perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. It makes perfect sense. And we, we reach the end of the character creation process with step five, the final step, which is finishing touches. So, um, we have to work out a few mechanical aspects of the character, which are um, connected to points you've already assigned. So in order to um, determine Throckmorton Peel's starting willpower, it will be directly um, a copy of what your courage rating is. So as we've just said, oh, so you've got, you put four points in courage, so you start with a courage five, which means your willpower will start at five. Awesome. No points to spend or anything like that, just starts at five. That's great. Your humanity, um, is starting at a combination of your conscience and your self-control. All right, so that's one, two, three, five. Yeah, and it's it's worth noting that willpower and humanity are both on a scale of ten. So even though willpower, you might think, oh, willpower five, that's only halfway. So and five is halfway of humanity as well. Humanity, obviously, being what it says, somebody with a very high humanity um, is, is still connected to their mortal self and. and are very humane whereas people who are very low humanity are very bestial and you know 
dis- distanced from humanity, so to speak. What what happens if I lose all my humanity points during the course of the game? Without getting too much into it, um, it's a slow progress. You can um, basically you will lose humanity by performing acts which um, normal sane human beings would not do, killing people for no reason, all that kind of thing. Um, awesome. If you if you went down too far in humanity, technically what's meant to happen is you will then hand your character sheet over to me and you become an NPC. Um, cool. Because you, it, the game, as written, assumes that you, know, you can't really play a character with humanity zero because you would have no control over yourself or what you did. You almost become instinctive and animalistic. Um, you're just a killing machine who is eventually going to get put down or caught or you know, dead somehow, super dead somehow. Um, you can exist on, on very, very low levels of humanity, but I would put in this caveat that it's very hard to maintain a form of game balance with very low humanity characters. Um, they tend to become what we, <laughs> what we commonly call murder hobos, um, you know, killing NPCs and PCs um, off left, right and centre and, and breaking the masquerade, which is the agreed upon law by all vampires that we should remain hidden from the sight of humanity and that becomes very difficult to do with a very low humanity so for the vampire society's self-preservation it tends to take steps to self-police its own members that have very low humanity um so for that reason alone and and game balance etc you would always try and maintain some semblance of humanity i think it's worth um, me taking a, a slight tangent here to do a mini rant about humanity in vampire because (laughs) Uh, I think it's something that's really overlooked. Um, There are as many different ways to play vampire as there are different groups. I realize that millions. Um, But in my experience from talking to people and watching other games and, you know, my limited experience of playing, you know, 20 odd years worth of vampire um, is people can really ignore humanity and can just go off and do as they will and, you know, let their humanity slide and isn't that funny and that's great and I'm just going to murder this person, I'm going to do this, I'm going to commit diablery, I'm going to set fire to this barn of children and horses and, um, you know, play the fiddle as, you know, the horses scream over the baby's cries and all this kind of stuff. Um, and that, that's that's all well and good, but it, it removes what I think is... And I only think this because I, reading the early source books and, and, and reading articles in, in, in magazines and gaming magazines at the time, one of the main conflicts in Vampire for your character is the retention of humanity. The, the very purpose of the game is to control the beast within you and to remain human and functional even though the, the, the powers inside you are craving for blood constantly. You have become a monster, but to keep a firm hold on your humanity is the real conflict of the game, is the real struggle, it's the internal struggle Uh, and I think that's the the gothic tragic romance of the game which shouldn't be overlooked and I think if you, as a group of players or GMs, if you overlook that element of the game, then I think you're missing on on what makes it a really valuable and and, uh, can be a really rewarding experience. It's fine to play vampire as D&D if that's what you want to do and and run around and, and kill things and and, and have fights and, and that's fine you know um, there's that old way of saying you know as long as you're all having fun that's great and, and I've got no, no problem with that but if anyone really wants to try and get a grip of the game of Vampire the Masquerade as it was intended and maybe one of the reasons why it became so popular is because it really focuses on this internal struggle and I would say humanity is the the single most important um, stat if you want to come down to it 
on the character sheet when it comes down to that struggle. You can literally watch that as a morality bar for your character and you can strive to make that humanity go up or you can allow it to just, you know, disappear. And both of those can be really interesting character journeys. You know, it can be great to watch a character devolve into bestiality um, and, it, and, and it can be great to watch a character kind of ascend to a higher moral high ground. Um, both of which are fine, but quite often it's the struggle to, to maintain you your humanity which is often overlooked i think in there and by a lot of groups so i encourage people who are already playing vampire to really you know next time you, you set up a game look at that you know speak to that speak to your characters about their humanity and and present them with with opportunities to lose or gain humanity in the game you know moral quandaries i think that can be as interesting for an individual character to undergo um, uh, as much as a trap or, or a fight or anything like that because I think the characters will come away from that experience having felt a little bit of theatre and a little bit of drama and, and you know some real ownership over the, their own journey so I, I, I can't beat that highly enough that people should really look at humanity as, as, a, as a really important stat in Vampire I think some of the best role playing games are the ones that have the um the sort of mechanics that can tie directly into narrative choices and narrative experiences. Um, so it's not just I'm I'm looking down. Oh, I've got three points in drive. Better roll three dice for for to drive a car. It's like the my humanity. I've got a mechanic right here on my page that I am going to keep in mind as a player that will dictate my choices and that the story will dictate how I'm going to try and manage that stat in particular. And as it rises and falls. My character might change. The nature of my character might change based on this. I think those are the best kinds of mechanics for me. The ones that you can you can tie directly into what is happening around the character, and the GM can reference and use as uh, jumping off points, and and use to as nudges and bring in various different hooks or whatever based on this specific stat more than the others, perhaps. Yeah, and, and do you know what? And and I think what you just highlighted there is is even more important to say to people. You know, the more you bring as supplementary material or ideas of your character, the more your GM has to kind of bounce off. And as a yeah. GM, you should be doing that. It's, it's a mutual yeah. creation. You know, you should be a very thankful GM if your, your players are bringing in these interesting contacts and backgrounds and, and, and ideas because it just gives you this fountain of, 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 of hooks and jumping, on, jumping off points. And likewise, players should be doing that for the GMs, you know, help, helping to take ownership of you know the microcosm of creation that you have in this greater story and to kind of and if the gm is lucky enough to have several players who are all doing that the web that you weave just becomes this amazing tapestry of, of, of stories and interlinking plots and subplots and that's really when everybody's going to get the most enjoyment out of it um but to, to drag back to a conclusion to our character um, creation because we've essentially finished it now um the last part of it as we've been mentioning is the allocation of freebie points this is basically a pool of 15 points that you would get to finalize your character to um, pick up any skills, increase any stats that you feel don't quite represent the character that you have in your head. Um, it's not a one-for-one -one basis across the sheet. Several um, stats are much more expensive. So for instance, if you wanted to buy any more disciplines, they cost seven freebie points per dot. Whereas something like wow. you... Something like humanity will only cost a single point per dot. So if you thought that, you know, you start with a humanity of five because that was a total of your conscience and self-control. Whereas if you feel like um, Throckmorton's humanity should be higher, then you can assign some points to it. Um, 
likewise with your virtues, abilities and attributes. Basically any, any stat on that sheet can then be affected by your freebie points at various costs. So um, I don't know if you want to just quickly spend them just to, for the sake of completion. Of course, we can't leave this unfinished, can we? Um, I'm going to spend one, uh, I'm going to put one dot into my potence discipline. That costs a whopping seven, seven, discipline, uh, seven freebie points. Which leaves you within I'm going to want a bit of vampiric strength, um, yeah. and then the the rest of them I'd like to spend in my in the abilities section. Okay. Maybe I want to be more athletic, so I'm going to put a few into athletics. This is the um, option that you have to raise any of those abilities over three. Okay. So you you can spend. Points. It's only two points a dot, so you can raise something to level four for two points, so you can raise it level five for a total of four points. Ah. If I raise something to four points, I get a specialty. Is that right? You can select a specialty, yeah. Just um, obviously, most people will assume what that means, but it means you can choose a very focused area of um, action for that particular uh, ability, and it will allow you uh, better mechanics when dealing with it. So you might, put, you might have high levels of drive, and then at level four, you might go motorcycles which means you are better at a motorcycle than you are with most of the vehicles, but the drive skill will allow you to ride a tractor or a, a moped or anything like that. So likewise, right. for those combat-orientated people, you can, <laughs> at level four firearms, you can go you know, shotguns or, you know, pistols or whatever it is, whatever it is you and uh, gun monkeys want to do. That's fine. <laughs> I'm going to take this opportunity to bump my investigation up to four. Okay. And the specialties listed on page 154 include detective work, which seems quite relevant. So that's my specialty for investigation is detective work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there are there are some specialties listed in the book, obviously, which are a jumping off point for your imagination. But um, really, uh, the choice of speciality should be a, a discussion between the GM and the player, and, and any any kind of um, anything can be covered if you just you know the the sky's the limit, really. Right. I, f I find that quite like. I would I would put everything under the aspects of detective work, and I'll try and convince you that any kind of investigation role I was making could be considered a detective work, and I would therefore get my specialty for it. Yeah, I mean, I mean that that depends on how how generous the GM wants to be, um, and and <laughs> and how kind of tricksterish they want to be in providing um, situations where detective work is not obvious. <laughs> and the remainder of my points, I'm going to put into dodge. Okay, interesting. So automatically I can tell if combat comes up with a high dexterity and a high dodge, the one thing Throckmorton Peel's going to want to do is get out of the way rather than kind of yeah. stand and fight. Um, which again tells me a lot about it. And if you were a single character in a group, that's fine. You might be the person who takes a step back while the, the bruises move in or whatever. Or, you know, if we were playing this as a as a one-on-one -on -one game, then it would tell me that any, you know, combat style situations I put you in, you know, you're going to try and escape, which, you know, which is fine. Um, but that might work from a narrative point of view as well. So, um, And with that, with awesome. the allocation of freebie points, um, that's really it, the spark of life. I would say that one um, important thing that we, um, we didn't cover with it, which is always um, worth doing, is to detail the, the transition from your mortal existence to your immortal existence. Obviously, you've only become a vampire because you've been embraced by another vampire. I think it's always worth... Um, spending a lot of time thinking about Throckmorton's relationship with the vampire who brought him into this existence and also to think about when this happened 
these can have um, they don't really have any effect on the game mechanically um, but what they do is uh, allow you a, a sense of of person and and your your views on certain things for instance you know were you only turned into a vampire kind of five years ago you know new to all of this and you know you might not know of the the vamp vampire npcs very well or have you been a vampire for 50 years for instance you know which means that you were would have been a detective in the 40s which is a very different mindset coming out of that world war ii period um you know that that be very different way of doing things you you probably prefer the old school methods as opposed to the new methods what i would say for starting vampires is it's very good to keep that um vampiric existence less than 50 years and i think that stops really old you know kind of anachronistic characters you can of course go you know older than that um again everything that should be discussed between gm and player if you want to play you know um uh, Napoleonic war veteran and that's really important to your character then then great it, it doesn't really matter mechanically um, it's fine you know you can do that but um, it is it is written as assumed that your your vampires will be relatively new um, and that's kind of what makes you a starter character a low level so to speak um, there are various source books and, and, and things that deal with playing characters of a much older age. Um, this rulebook can support that. You know, you can use this character creation process that we've just gone through to create um, somebody who was born 500 years ago and in mind about 100 years ago or 50 years ago or yesterday. So um, it, it supports most of the purpose. Obviously, if you go back kind of a thousand years, that you, the character creation process doesn't really create a, a vampire that kind of looks like that. But um, anything within kind of recent history is, is open. So that that's what, something worth thinking about for Throckmorton. Awesome, awesome. I'm going to say just quickly off the top of my head, maybe he was sired, well, we're playing in 87. Maybe let's say if he was sired maybe 10 years ago. So right. when he was on, when he was a investigator, he was a bit of a, what's that guy from Life on Mars? Philip Glenister's character. Yeah, the, yeah. The kind of misogynist pig, like a bit of a yeah, scumbag. Yeah, the gov. Um, so he, yeah, yeah, the gov. So he's, he's, he's bringing that mindset with him. And he's maybe he was sired by, maybe he was investigating a case and he the case got too deep and led him somewhere that he didn't know where. He got, he got in too deep into a situation he wasn't familiar with and he got sired by someone he was investigating who has since disappeared. And that gives him a bit of motivation to go out and search for his sire because yeah. they've dropped him into this situation that he's really bitter about. Yeah, and then that, that gives that gives me more little things to jump off and more little sub potential subplots. Uh, so that's great. Um, and then you again, it's giving you that extra um, extra idea about you know who Throckmorton is and what he's all about. So with that, I mean, obviously we we took our time to discuss it backwards and forwards and, and went on some tangents. But hopefully everybody can see how easy it is to to create um, a character that at the end of it has some real kind of three-dimensional depth because I think if you're playing a storytelling game what you want is is somebody who has you know needs and motivations and desires and backgrounds and you know a world around them not just kind of six stats and some hit points which is fine for a dungeon bash but I think for a game like Vampire the Masquerade it, the character creation process is a great vehicle for providing you with a, with a character that's going to be suitable for that kind of game. I think if, let's say, we were in a party of maybe there's three players and a GM, I, I create one character, two other players create two other characters, and before you know it, we've got an entire world already to work from, even before the GM's done any real setting work. We've we've made a lot of the world right here on the paper, haven't we? 
Absolutely, and and people will no doubt approach games different ways, but I, I can't stress um, strongly enough that it's worth sitting down, almost like session zero before you start playing. You know, any GM, sit down with your players, do the character creation together, um, because it allows the characters to bump off each other and and kind of riff off each other because. If you allow the characters to just create, you know, go away, um, you know, Vampire the Masquerade rulebook, create your character, bring it on Monday, fine. Um, you, you might get three guys who are girls or people who are, have very different ideas about the game they're going to play. They've created three characters that really don't gel well together. Um, and, it, and it can be a real nightmare for the GM because he has a certain game in his head. They haven't created characters for that game. I think if you spend the session doing character creation together and that those creative juices can flow backwards and forwards between the GM and the players, then that's always going to result in the kind of thing that you've just mentioned there where you've got you've got a wealth of, of plot hooks and NPCs already and you can be laying little connections between the characters if they've got any. Yeah, I think that's great. Awesome. Man, I'm really happy with that uh, character that we come up with on the spot there. That's really cool. And uh, I'll put this character sheet to one side and hopefully he might he might see the light of day at some point. No pun intended, obviously, being a vampire. <laughs> um... Um, if you're listening we hope that helped um, do get in touch if you have any tips clearly at least one of us knows what they're talking about when it comes to the kind of thing um, I would recommend using a mechanical pencil as well, they're always the best for filling in character sheets and with that we are going to uh, move on so um, do stay tuned in the future for more character creation episodes we're going to be covering um, the four other games that make up the staple of the World of Darkness uh, franchise so if you enjoyed what you just heard or if that was interesting in any way, then uh, stay tuned and we'll have some more of that same kind of content coming up for you in the future. So moving on, we are going to discuss a film that we both saw recently and I think we're both quite excited to talk about this film, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'd been aware of it um, and the original for a while, but I I hadn't watched it until recently, so it's, it's, a, very, it's a very new experience for me. Suspiria. 2018 version of Suspiria, directed by Luca Guadagnino. This is a remake of the 1977 original Suspiria, which was directed by Dario Argento. Starring Dakota Johnson, it's got Chloe Grace Moretz in it as well, and the awesome tour de force, cinematic tour de force that is Tilda Swinton, who I just can't get enough of her. I want her to be my mom. I love her. Um... This film was scored by Tom York of Radiohead. I don't know if you know that. I was enjoying the soundtrack, and I didn't realise it was Tom York who did it. So, the film, basically, it's a remake of the 77 version, and it keeps a lot of the same um, plot elements. It's essentially the same uh, story. Uh, this is going to be a spoiler-heavy discussion, so if you haven't seen it, maybe consider um, going away and watching the film and really getting a uh, full experience of it try and avoid trailers as well if you can because there's some truly shocking moments in this film that i didn't see coming when i was watching it that the impact was all the more harder because i had no idea they were coming so um, avoid trailers go and give it a watch and then come back and now you're back so um basically the story follows a young american ballerina in 1970s berlin this young American dancer is accepted by a very prestigious dance school um, and uh, she goes over to 70s Berlin to study dance and 
slowly kind of uncovers a lot of dark horrors and magic and unsuspecting kind of nightmares and and there's a lot of foul foul magic at play in inside this dance academy and she she kind of gets embroiled in it and uh witnesses a lot of things and and it changes and then uh so we we sort of watch her character in all these different ways as as the story progresses had you seen the original before you watched the remake I have watched the original. Now, interesting actually about this because I, I watched the original maybe two years ago, something like that, quite recently. Um, so I watched the original first. Uh, I've, I found it pretty boring. Um, I found it kind of meandering and a lot of it didn't make sense. It's an Italian film and the Italian films in the 70s I don't know how many 70s Italian films you've seen, but there is a lot of nonsense. Um, but one point I did want to make about the original is the soundtrack. Now, the soundtrack for the 77 version of Suspiria is um, quite famous in a lot of circles. It's a bit of a Marmite soundtrack. A lot of people really rate it. They really think it's one of the most groundbreaking soundtracks of the of kind of late 70s spaghetti cinema. Um, a lot of people, including myself, think that it's absolute trash. Um, I found the soundtrack was so jarring and grating during the watching of the 77 version that I actually couldn't focus on the film or what was happening because I was too busy dealing with the headache that the soundtrack was giving me, if you like. Now, there's a, there might be a few reasons for this, um, but I, I think it's important to note in 1976, the year before this film came out, um, Barbara Streisand released A Star Is Born, and that was the very first film to have surround sound encoded into the film. So when it was played in theatres, the sound was not mono, it was it was a stereo recording that came with the, the, uh, the, the films that they sent out to the theatres. So I think in that period, since 1976... I'm assuming this 77 version of Suspiria was one of those films where the directors had noticed you could encode this stereo format into the films they were sending out to cinemas and there was a bit of experimentation with how they were recording sound and how they were using the soundscapes in the films they were making and there was a lot of kind of new ground being broken in the late 70s with regards to the soundtrack. Um, this one didn't do it too well in my opinion. So I, I don't have particularly fond memories of the of the seventy seven original and this one, the two thousand and eighteen version, I much prefer. I think it's a lot better. I really enjoyed it. Well, I I came to it without having seen the. I still haven't seen the original. Um, because of my experience with with this remake, I will go back and watch the original. Um, just to you know, for interest to make comparisons, etc. Um, just to see how the story. And I'll I'll, I'll listen out for that. Uh, well, it sounds like I won't be able to avoid that. You will the not music, miss the soundtrack, trust no, me. You I won't will not miss, miss that the soundtrack. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I came to it without having seen the original. So for me, um, it was interesting the way that you, you know, you mentioned as she comes to the school, and, and um, I think they they do the reveal about the plot at a really nice pace. I think sometimes you can uh, you can reveal a lot very early, and sometimes it can be frustratingly late by the time. The plot has revealed it, especially in a, in a horror movie. But I think this, you were you were on the main character's journey, um, and 
I felt like yeah, the layers of the onion were being peeled back at a at a pleasantly steady pace. Certainly, and the, the person I was watching it with was questioning. She was going, "Well, are they who's who's evil here? What's going on here?" Like she she honestly didn't know. She couldn't work out what the plot was as it was happening, having not seen anything about it. And I think that's a great uh, that's that's a a great kind of symbol for how how well the storytelling is done in that sense in that it, I think slowly it is, unfolds uh, and you're, you're kept yeah i'd heard more. of it i'd heard of it but i'd never seen it and and i didn't know the plot either so uh, um i don't know what i was expecting from it but mm. I, it wasn't what i got you know which was nice so i was surprised by what i got initial thoughts uh, did you like it give me like an out of 10 rating would you recommend it what's what stood out to you is there any particular scenes there's one scene in particular that definitely stands out for me is there anything that you want to uh, mention off the off the bat um i mean for me um I, i'm going to score it really high um i think awesome. it was really great um i think i'd probably put it up there as, as as maybe a nine because i can't there's not a lot i would think i would change about it um it's got a few minor flaws if i'm going to like really like pick at it but um on the whole, I think it was really excellent. Um, in terms of favourite scenes, I think it really ramps up the intensity as it goes on, doesn't it? But um, I think there's a the part where, um, and it's it's in the the first kind of third of the film. Oh um, yeah, yeah. This is the one I was going to say too. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a girl who is who is obviously um, has discovered that something is not quite right with the dance school. And she is basically ejected from it before she causes too much trouble. And there's a there's a wonderful scene where the dancers are in the main hall, and this this poor girl who is kind of almost on the the precipice of discovering, um, you know the the, the plot, she's put into this mirrored room, um, and she's thrown around, and it, it's very um, it's it's poetic, but it's 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 artistic, but it's brutal. It's harrowing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I think it's it's much more enjoyable within the context of the film. But if you're not willing to watch Suspiria, I would go on YouTube and search for Olga's death scene. It's fucking brutal as hell. Um, the the dancers in the other room next to her, their movements are sort of being channeled into the killing of this girl. So while Dakota Johnson's dancing and moving around in these very fluid feminine movements the sort of we we see the sort of opposite side to that and this sort of brutality that comes with the the fluid femininity of the dancer reflected into the the killing of this woman this really brutal way it's awful i think it would it would lose a lot taken out of context so yeah you, yeah. Can, you can watch it you can get something from it obviously but um i think there's a there's a danger there it would look very crass um and and i think it's worth mentioning that it's not indicative of the entire the way the entire movie is especially for the first kind of three quarters um it, and it's more powerful because of that um it's it can be quite gentle the film in a, in, a, in a dark kind of suspenseful way but that is very it's shot very bright you know um it's shot in a room full of mirrors so um it's almost like happening you know these terrible things happening in broad daylight is, is almost more frightening isn't it yeah so. definitely the way it's lit is um is part of what makes it so kind of uh, hard to watch because you can see there's no nothing's concealed you can see everything that's happening to this poor girl um this film's cast is entirely women as well which i find um a great well, it's not artistic choice women. it's mostly women there are there are two male detectives um who have speaking parts and there are a handful of male characters who play non-speaking cameos all right um, but, more, but most but most of most of the cast are um are, are female right 
The police detectives, true, you got me there. Two of them, yeah, two, two police detectives. Yeah. There is a old German gentleman who is, we follow his story of investigating the dance academy from outside, parallel to the young protagonist's kind of journey inside. Um, this old uh, German man, he's played by Tilda Swinton as well. As well as playing the de facto head of the dance school. Yeah. Um, and it's, he's credited with a German name in the credits, so that, that took me a while to figure that out. And Tilda Swinton also plays a third character, which is Helena Marcos, one of the um, uh, kind of matriarchs of the dance school, who is uh, fully, fully black magicked up, fully evil right at the end. Yeah, that's one of the only minor flaws I get from this film. I think when they when they build up to the ritual scene at the end, and um, we see Mother Marcos um, in her kind of naked, twisted glory, I think the prosthetics there are are a bit weak. Um, and for me, it, it's the only part of the film where I almost sniggered. I think, and I, and I didn't want to because I, I I wanted to be swept away with the really intense feeling that the rest of the movie gave me. And I think. I think if they'd lit her differently or just at least covered her a little bit. Um, I realised, I know what they were going for. Everybody else in the room was naked and I think the nakedness is, was important artistically, but um, I think she was just so heavily prosthetic. The suit that she was on was, was was too unrealistic for me. Right, right, okay. I mean, it's <clears throat> it's pretty gruesome. She has like baby's hands coming out of her elbows and she, like her intestines coming out and stuff. Yeah. You know, she's very I clearly been like that, supported you know, by magic. Yeah. And I, and I love the fact that she was, you know, she's watching all these other dancers and she's waiting for sacrifices and she's playing with herself. And, you know, it's like, it's all it's all gruesome and it, and it fits it, but I just think it didn't look... For how good the rest of the film looks, I think I wouldn't be as critical if, if everything else wasn't, like, superb, looked superb. Like, for instance, Tilda Swinton's makeup when she's playing the, the German psychiatrist, I, I, it took me a long time to realise that that was her. Mm. Um, and... And it's really well done because the way that the shot in terms of, you know, um, she, Tilda Swinton's very tall um, and, and the man is shot as if he's very short. So obviously there's a stoop there and everything. And, you know, it's full full on immersion in, in both characters. So from, from Tilda Swinton's point of view, I think it's a it's a sure force for for, for her acting ability um, throughout this film. If, if, if nothing else, it, it, it's a real platform to, to show how good she is. Um, but I mean that I'm, I'm very minor picking at it. It doesn't spoil the film for me. I'm just you know if I had to be critical, that's what I would be critical of. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm, I don't know if we've covered at this point. The dance academy is actually run by a coven of witches. Um, Tilda Swinton being Madame Blanc, one of these uh, dance instructor slash witches. Um, which I think it's a great uh, it's a great concept. It's a really novel idea, um, and I think they're all played really well. I especially like there are some scenes where all of the uh, matrons, all of the all of the elder witches, go out for dinner in a cafe or something, and the camera is lingering on them, and they're all laughing and joking and having a great time and chain smoking, and underneath is subtitles of them having a very serious discussion about uh, the future of the academy and what they're going to do with their with their students. And it's it's like the witches are all speaking to each other in their minds while they they have this outward appearance of of being jovial and and amiable and laughing, 
and it's such there's there's these contrasts throughout the film like that obviously it's set in in um divided berlin in the 70s so there's there's a lot of those themes of kind of it's it's not what it appears to be if you like that, that run throughout this film i think that the film does a great um great great job of um being really proud about where it's set um and it, you know for for a movie because it's a dance company whatever it could technically be set anywhere you could you could translate this movie to you know america or whatever whatever but they've decided to obviously it's set in 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 berlin but the the shots that they use and the views of the differences between the east and the west and and the way that they show the city and you know divided as it was i think is really done excellently and there's a there's a kind of a subplot that's carried on in the background of the movie with the 1977 um plane hijack um which i'd i'd watched about in a, in a documentary at some point many years ago so I, I had it in the back of my mind that this was happening um and and it's played throughout the radio and the tv as a kind of um as a continual kind of media backdrop to the rest of the film and as the film becomes as the as the main plot becomes completed so does that the hijack ends so to speak so they kind of follow the, the these kind of parallel lines and for me um, it really reminded me of the way that alan moore presents um the subplot in watchmen okay with the, with, with the pirates um and you know with that story going on in, in the background and then the main and uh and I, i'm i'm Alan Moore doesn't normally like people, you know, talking about critiquing his work, but I, I'm fairly comfortable in the sense that he wouldn't mind being, uh, you know, compared to Suspiria. And he definitely listens to our podcast. Yeah, oh, no, 100%. You know, why, <laughs> why, why wouldn't you? Um, so, but yeah, um, this, this kind of subplot that's going on. And I was thinking as I was watching it, because I haven't seen the original, um, I assume it was 77, it, it w- that wouldn't have been in there. Because I don't know the exact timeline, but I assume if it was released in '77, it would have been filmed just before. And I assume they decided to put this in because it was happening at the same time the original film was set. So it just seems to make sense. And then they've they've timed it the right way, and it's become you know um, allegoricalized, presumed for people being trapped, and then the release at the end and all that kind of stuff. So I assume it wasn't in the original. That's a great analysis. I really like that. Um, no, it wasn't in the original. No. But I really like the way I really like the way you thought about that. It is allegorical because they never um, cross paths. These two storylines. We've got the film and then the media backdrop, and they never they never um, uh, cross uh, cross over. So it, it, it's it is an allegory. Certainly, I really like that man. So, but yeah, I think I think the way Berlin was portrayed was 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 spot on, and it really made it worth being set in Berlin rather than somewhere else. Um, and I think that was really important to it. And I think they play the, the the language perfectly. You know, there's a little bit of subtitle, but then there isn't, um, because obviously they're the girls have come to the academy from all over, and you know, there's a bit of French speaking and a bit of, a lot of English speaking, obviously, and some German, and and I think all of that helps to add to the realistic tone, which which makes it even more unnerving that you really start to believe this is happening. You know, your your suspension of disbelief is really strong in this in this film until. You are kind of bombarded with the, the occult barbarity at the end. By that point, you've kind of bought into it, um, which I think makes it even more shocking. So, now it's interesting that you say that that works in the context of this film. Whereas I was making a similar point when we watched Hereditary, and that didn't have the same effect for you then. So, because um, 
the end of Hereditary to just we're not going to bang on too much about that because we're talking about Suspiria, <laughs> but I think I think the reason with that was it was the it was when the the woman levitated up to the barn, right? Um, and it was it was breaking all laws of nature. It right. was it was something that just simply wasn't possible. And I know there's things in Suspiria that is impossible. You know, there's there's people exploding people's heads and all this kind of stuff. But it was done in a basement, um, out of out of sight of everybody, and and kind of. I can almost accept that maybe you know people are perceiving things a different way and, and all this kind of stuff and right um but i just i thought the actions at the end of suspiria were much more fitting to the worldview and kind of um the the, the metaphysics of, of the movie whereas i think hereditary didn't have any of that build and it, and it just it went over the top at that scene and it became farcical whereas i don't think suspiria ever quite goes into farce okay um and and I think that's the difference. And and that final scene in Hereditary, I think I would have loved it if they had just just climbed the ladder rather than float up it. it would have just made such a difference um, <laughs> because there's just this. It's just it's a laugh moment, and you don't need a laugh moment to break um, that, that that whole feel that that atmosphere. Yeah. And I don't. Suspiria doesn't provide that laugh moment. It it provides very little opportunity for sniggering. Um, and I think that's what my issue is with the prosthetics on Mother Marcos, because it almost provides that opportunity to laugh at you know this this, this you know naked old woman, and but it, it manages to retain its horror, whereas Hereditary breaks that barrier. And for me, that puncture is something the whole balloon goes pop. Whereas right. with Suspiria, it, it doesn't. That balloon stays firm um, because it's done so. It's it's done very differently. And I think as well. There's something to be said for the way that it establishes the atmosphere throughout the film. And even when we're not watching any overt witchcraft happen, we're still watching these dance sequences and this choreography of all these women making these these fluid kind of natural animalistic moves. And this choreography kind of represents womanhood in a lot of ways and styles of witchcraft. So as as the viewer, we're kind of getting it subconsciously, even when there's no horror happening on the screen the dance sequences themselves are kind of representing the witchcraft that is being done in that academy so it's 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 being shown to us even when there's there's nothing to disbelieve yeah and and i think what you've struck on there as well is, is really important to the film it's that that kind of feminist element of it and obviously you mentioned that the vast vast majority of the cast are women um as opposed to two very minor roles so the, the policeman that i mentioned earlier uh, you know, don't share a page of, of script between them. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the whole, the movie is entirely um, cast by by women. And but I think they don't stop there. They when the discussion of not just the dancing but the witchcraft, etc. Those two levels of discussion that occult and you know um, overt. There's still a lot of mention about the power of women and the freedom that women can get from from banding together and being powerful and you know that that shaking off of repression and, and the way that men treat women and all that kind of thing um and obviously the, the coven of witches has that overtly and then you can kind of almost think that with the dancers and and um so there's a lot of little mentions there that kind of reinforce that ideal and i think it's a really powerful ideal that goes through through the entire film yeah and i think even even something as strong an idea as that we still see that it's not unifying because there's that scene where one of the matron witches 
they're all sitting around a desk the one with the big um bottle spectacles yeah. on yeah they're all sitting around talking acting like having a normal kind of german breakfast with all their cold meats and whatever else the germans eat in the morning and um she just stands up and stabs herself in the neck and kills herself so it's, you know even though the these women are unified in their ideal it might be something that is still is too much or still is not entirely conscionable for certain people so there's there's always that kind of tension and there's always that kind of um unknown element yeah i i think yeah to um to clarify what I was saying, it's not. I didn't think it was like a, you know, women. It's us versus them. It was the power of women. And you're right. There is discussion and dissent amongst the coven, and I think yeah. that forms a really strong point of the narrative. Yeah. Um, but I think it it stronger than that is the fact that they are all women, and you know, it is is almost like the secret society of women against the men. And and I have a confession to make that the scene which which you're referring with the the woman who stabs herself in the neck. I didn't understand that. I mean, I didn't. I have a few theories, but I, I don't. I don't. It's not really discussed why exactly she did that. Is she feeling guilty? Was she controlled by one of the other witches? I mean, what did you take from that? Because that left me really confused. I didn't. Uh, I knew it was brutal, so but I, I just didn't get why she'd done it. Yeah, I think there are a few ways to look at it. My my initial take was that she could see the splintering of the coven like i think a few scenes before that we see the coven taking a vote on who to lead and i don't think her vote is um the one who makes it through or or by by a result of that vote she can see that there's dissent forming and i think she i think she takes the easy way out i think she's she's the cleverest one of the bunch and she can see that whatever's going to happen it's going to be horrible and it is um, and I think she just she's she just kind of has a snapping moment where she she realizes well the only way that I'm going to be able to escape this myself, no matter which of these two factions wins, is if I take my own life. And then she fucking shanks herself in the neck brutally and bleeds all over the all over the breakfast yeah. table. Yeah. But that's yeah, one way it, to look at it. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. No. I mean, I mean that that makes sense. You know, and 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 I, and I get that. And it's very similar to the way that I was thinking. Um, but because, and it's great that it's done in that way that it doesn't really explain it. And I love a movie that doesn't pander to the audience necessarily yeah. because we don't get a, a full, you know, bio of when this coven started and what it does in the background of everybody. I like that it exists. We come into it in media rest, so to speak, you know, um, when the background to it is kind of hinted at and discussed, but it isn't laid out for us as a map, which I think is it lends more to, to its sense of realism. So I really like that, the fact that it doesn't explain how the magic is done and everything. And we, we're just there almost as, um, as kind of voyeurs, as kind of observers of this rather than anything else. So yeah, I like it. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of um, stuff that doesn't make overt sense. There are a lot of dream sequences in the film. The, the witches put dreams into the heads of the students and the students there's various discussions about since i came here i've been having these crazy dreams or something and we we do see tilda swinton and the other witches sending those dreams to the students but the sequences themselves are a series of images that aren't entirely explained um that could be taken in a variety of contexts i did i did do some research on on some of this stuff and some of the images that flash up during the dream sequences are recreations of paintings by an artist called francesco woodman so again there's a lot of um, artistic influences that are coming from outside that the director is drawing on to kind of set the tone for this witchcraft 
the way yeah the way that's put together it's very 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 well thought out i i noticed a few um uh, there was there was a lot of use of of color not just in the the way it was shot but in in costume and things like that i think you know it was really uh, it, it's been thought out with a, a, a deep knowledge of symbolism without a doubt and, and nothing nothing is by accident i think in the way that it's done and i think that makes me like it even more so which is yeah. why i score it so highly which i do you know yeah that's great man you definitely watching it you definitely get the sense that everything is there for a reason kind of thing yeah absolutely yeah. um the director of the original actually has come out and saying he didn't like this version um he says it betrays the spirit of the original um, it had it has no fear and no music, which I thought is funny because it's terribly scary and the music's great. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, as I say, for me to be able to put this in proper context, I'm going to have to go and watch the original, which I will do, um, and no doubt we'll discuss it at some point. But um, I think from somebody coming to it without knowing much about it and not having seen the original, I, I can give it a you know a massive thumbs up. And I realise that if you've listened to it this far and you haven't seen it, then you know <laughs> a lot of yeah, spoilers sorry. but yeah but um but i still think it's worth watching obviously um, yeah great yeah. film yeah so check out suspiria 2018 um i mean anything with tilda swinton has got my vote anyway so she's lover that's worth a watch um all right so um finally in the episode we are going to do our customary music segment now a word on the previous music segments again um, if you're following the ongoing saga between myself and the copyright laws, uh, I'm sure you can predict who's going to come out on top here. Um, we are trying to get uh, songs at the end of episodes. I don't think it's going to be as easy as we initially thought it, it would be. Innocently, we just want to share our songs and our music that we like and recommendations with you, the audience. But um, the law is not as simple as that. So... Perhaps in future episodes we won't have music at the end. It's not going to be as simple. But that doesn't mean that you can't check out the albums and the bands and the songs that we are, we are bringing up here. A lot of them are going to be relating to the subject matter. Like back in episode 2 when we discussed art and I, I decided to bring Conan, the doom metal band, to the table. I think their art is really great. So it, it's still worth checking out. It's still worth going to research and Google. Um, if you want new music recommendations and of course as always head on over to our discord and we uh, will recommend some new music in there as well and discuss various bands there's a lot of talk about bolt thrower of course um, so this is one of the episodes where the music choice is very um, relevant to the main bulk of the episode Jamie has brought along the music choice for this round what have you got for us this week Jamie so rather than a single artist or an album, um, this is actually a playlist. Um, it's it, well, and essentially it's a playlist that I've assembled, but it's a playlist that the writers of Vampire the Masquerade Second Edition, the book which we have spent all this time talking about, assembled as the songs which they chose to quote throughout the rule book. So White Wolf was um, had this great artistic idea of. Um, quoting some relevant lines from their favorite artists and songs um, to kind of pepper through the rule books to give it a, a real sense. And what I was saying earlier about, you know, it's a product of its time, you know, this was published in the very early 90s. Um, the playlist is put together with bands such as Joy Division, The Cure, Minor Threat, 
um, Circle Jerk, Killing Joke, etc. Um, and listening to this playlist, which is, uh, you can find it on Spotify. Um, it's literally titled Vampire the Masquerade Core Book Second Edition. Um, you can follow that or follow me, Jay Coliseum Rex on Spotify, and you can uh, look at all the different playlists that I've done. Um, and this basically collects in, in one easy listening place all of the tracks which obviously inspired and were out around the time that the guys were writing Vampire the Masquerade. So to get a real deep feel about the mindset of the guys writing it and the way that the, the game is intended to be presented, you know, the gothic punk feel and theme, you can't do any better than go to this playlist and, and listen through these tracks. Um, it's obviously clear to see what kind of music the guys were into. But there is a bit of variety, you know, we've got Ice-T, Gordon Lightfoot, um, Dire Straits even, Susie and the Banshees, um, predominantly rock, um, you know, but we've got some great songs in there, uh, we've even got some Rush, um, but it, it's it's really good background music for getting into that vampire mood, so whether you use it as background music when you're playing an 80s game, or... Um, you know whether you just do it when you're writing the adventure or doing character creation or anything like that you could do a lot worse than, than kind of checking out this playlist uh, on spotify if you manage to find that one i've done a few other playlists for um their other games werewolf and mage and changeling etc because these these song references go all the way through their early books they kind of stopped doing it eventually um but there's there's a good amount of songs referenced in in this book that's really awesome, man. That's really awesome. So the, the later books, for example, V5 or the revised version, they don't have the same um, lyrics listed for each of the sections? No, I mean, it's this, yeah. This, this oh, that's a shame, care. isn't it? That's yeah, a bit I, of a shame. I don't, I, don't know whether they, I, I don't know whether this has got to be because they got too big and whether that costs money or upsets people. I, I, I'm not sure of the ins and outs there or whether it was just an artistic change in direction. Um but this is it's predominantly in the early books it was there was a lot more songs um and it just so it's really great because there's a lot of bands here that i already knew and enjoyed like you know the cure and and kill and joke but there's a lot of bands that i got turned on to that i hadn't listened to um you know the alan parsons project and heart and indigo girls and bands like that which then i've gone back to discover because they're all wrapped up in this kind of late 80s early 90s white wolf kind of feel you know this almost kind of new romantic gothic punk sandman tori amos kind of vertigo, early vertigo comics kind of thing that you know it, it's hard to pin down exactly what it is but it's got a, it's got a feel all of its own and and this playlist really kind of is a, is a great cornerstone for getting into that mindset it, you know if you if people want to explore you know the genesis of the the world of darkness yeah, I think music and RPGs definitely come hand in hand, um, even if it's something as simple as background music on YouTube. But a specific curated playlist like this one really takes it to that next level. And there might be the case where certain songs can be used as cues for certain elements, or you you're, you might go through the vampire playlist and pick a specific track for your character. I'm sure there's a few in there that Throckmorton Peel would, would have as his theme song, perhaps some something by The Clash or something like that, maybe. Yeah, it's really great. And like I say, for inspiration for GMs or background music or anything like that, I mean, any, anybody could have um, come and put that together. And um, I put that together and put it on as a um, 
public playlists on Spotify. I think I must have done that five, five, six years ago, something like that. But um, like I say, I've done quite a few of them. Um, and it's it's not a playlist put together by me. I've just copied the the the, the songs from the rule book. So it's um, you know it was all there, all the White Wolf's choices. You know, not not my personal favourites. Do you have a personal favourite from the playlist? No, I just mean that it, I think if I was to go and create a Vampire the Masquerade second edition playlist, uh, I would have a lot of stuff on it that necessarily isn't on here. Right, and Jamie's, may, Jamie's own kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that just starts to come into personal taste and things like that. And, you know, I would have picked, you know, a lot more darker industrial stuff maybe and, and, and maybe gone putting some dark poppy stuff as well. But that's all to do with whatever theme and mood you're trying to get across in the sessions that you're running. But this is a great little um, snapshot into the theme and mood that those guys were obviously you know, playing the early games and playtesting and stuff like that. And yeah. you know, whatever they were listening to while they were bashing out Vampire the Masquerade on their typewriter or whatever it was. So. <laughs> I'd just have A Forest by The Cure on repeat forever. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that I think that is definitely mentioned in the in the werewolf playlist, anyway. So. Oh, cracking! Oh, uh, great. Okay, I'm yeah, looking forward yeah. to our werewolf character creation episode where yeah, we get to talk about it, yeah. uh, the cure yeah. at the end. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's great, man. That's a really good pick. I think it's uh, probably the most relevant song or album choice yet for an episode. Um, if you are going to create a vampire character or start a vampire campaign, there's really no other music playlist that's going to suit that better than the official White Wolf. Uh, playlist curated by our very own Jamie. There you go. Enjoy. Enjoy. Thank you for listening, guys. Um, I've had fun. It's always nice to put a character together, especially off the top of our head. So thank you for running through that process with me, my friend. Absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to doing the other ones. Uh, they'll be coming up um, periodically in between the rest of our content, which we've got a lot more of. So do stay tuned, stay hydrated. And thank you again for listening, guys. Join the Discord, check out the Instagram, and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you very much. Good night, Jamie. Good night.